From the beginning, Putin has justified his war on Ukraine by framing the West as an existential threat to Russia. At one point, he even said the West was trying to cancel Russia and continues to baselessly blame Western culture and greed for the atrocities. The whole planet is now paying for the West's ambitions and the West's attempts to maintain its elusive dominance. Yet Putin's own daughters reportedly owned property in the West, and many of Russia's richest and most well-connected people hold valuable assets in Europe and the U.S., But since the war began, the international community has been chipping away at their lavish lifestyles by slapping them with massive sanctions. It is believed to be the world's biggest yacht, and it's the latest to be swept up in the global dragnet targeting the riches of Russian oligarchs. Chelsea Football Club owner Roman Abramovich has been added to the British government's list of individuals hit with sanctions. He and the six other Russian oligarchs have a combined net worth estimated at close to $20 billion. So who are these oligarchs and Kremlin insiders who make up Putin's inner circle? How much influence do they have on this war? And what do they really think about how it's going? That's what we're talking about today with my guest, Jill Doherty. For decades, she reported from Russia on the inner workings of the Kremlin. She was a former Moscow bureau chief for CNN, and she's now a CNN contributor and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Rund. Jill, can I start with what might be a kind of stupid question? What is an oligarch? You know, oligarchs in the Russian sense are super, super rich people. They're often, they're almost always billionaires. And these are the people, at least originally, who at the death throes of the Soviet Union, the the government really, really needed money. And so there were these smart people at the time who began buying up things. And they were buying up factories or businesses. And often in the extractive industries, you know, oil, gas, minerals, etc. And they would create companies. It later got expanded into other areas. And so then as Russia stabilizes, the government gets a little bit more stable, the economy stabilizes, they are sitting on a lot of money. I think what sets it apart from oligarchs maybe in other countries, they are very, very tightly uh, wound in with the government. So, again, super rich people who are really very much part of the system. Right. And so tell me, how, how are they part of the system? How do they fit in this big picture? Well, let's go back to the first president, Boris Yeltsin. Um, at that point, the oligarchs were making their money. So there were a lot of rich people. When Putin came in, he sat them down at the Kremlin in a big room and said, listen, you guys, if you get involved in politics, anything like that, I'm going to shut you down. But mm. if you support what's going on here and you don't get involved, then, you know, in politics, then you can make as much money as you want. And this is a period where you had like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who's pretty well known, oil baron at the time. He was very involved in politics. He was, you could alternately say, buying or influencing members of the parliament. And uh, Putin could not take this, of course. And so he very quickly shut him down. 
He ended up in a work camp in the Ural Mountains, I believe, maybe into Siberia. And he was there for a number of years and then finally released. But this is what happened. Anyone who did not go along with the Kremlin would be shut down, arrested, um, you know, forced to leave the country. So if you don't sign up for, you know, the team, if you're not a team player, then that that's it for you, pretty much. Correct. And I think it's important to also mention, at that time, it was quite obvious that the media were very valuable. And, mm-hmm. and Putin, being an ex-KGB person who understands information, disinformation, propaganda, and the media. And so he began to take over the media. Now, Sometimes there actually were guys with guns, but usually there was a fig leaf of legality. Um, let's say they hadn't paid their taxes or they had done something that was considered illegal. Then they could be taken over and were taken over usually by friendly people uh, in the media. And the government eventually ended up either controlling outright or having friendly people control those outlets. So you have a sense of what the the view on the ground is from all your years reporting from Russia. How do people there view the oligarchs and the system that you describe of working hand in hand with the government? How are they received? Well, among average people, I think it's kind of a duality. Um, They know that State enterprises traditionally in the Soviet times were controlled by the government. Um, I don't think there is as much worry about who controls what media network because a lot of times, you know, average people don't have that information or are not interested in it. But I do think there is an inherent um, dislike for rich people and people who are richer than you. Right. And these guys are like really, really rich, right? Like they own super yachts. They some own like soccer teams in Europe, right? Oh, like yeah. these are the tip of tip top. Yes. I mean, it's almost hard to imagine it. But like if you were pre-Ukraine, uh, if you were to walk around Moscow, you would see incredible cars, like cars that I've never seen in my life. Bentleys and Rolls Royce and, you know, women who just are dressed in the most incredible fashion. Um, you have a very, very high lifestyle in Russia itself, not to mention when you get into Europe with these yachts. I mean, some of these yachts are hundreds of millions of dollars. You're verging on almost a billion dollars for a yacht. So this is really fantastical richness. Right. So now up to today, when Putin decides to invade Ukraine and the West hits back and tries to target some of these oligarchs and their yachts and their their holdings. What is the idea behind that and and the end game that the West can hope by influencing some of these super rich people? Well, I think in the beginning it was you put pressure on these guys. You know, take their yachts, take their luxury houses, and then by that, you know, have them put pressure on Putin to stop the invasion or stop the war. And, you know, theoretically, rationally, that kind of sounds like a good idea. And I think it's still part of 
the idea behind these sanctions. But, you know, so many of these people are already complicit with Putin. They're part of this system and they exist because of Putin. And Putin exists in a way because of them, or at least because of this highly corrupt and very incestuous system. So mm. now I think the idea probably is still the same, that eventually you put pressure on these guys who don't want their companies to fail, you know? Um, the only yeah. problem is these companies don't always work according to the way companies in the West do, because they are so tied to government help. For instance, right now when they have um, the sanctions on these companies, if they run into difficulty, especially the banks, they, they will be bailed out. There are slush funds for these people from the Putin government. So it doesn't always work that, you know, squeeze them and you hurt Putin or they begin to get disaffected or disillusioned by Putin. And then they say, hey, Vladimir, that is too much. Yeah. I was going to ask, is is it having any effect? Like, is, is any oligarch going to say, hey, my yacht has been taken from me. Putin, you got to stop this war. That, does, that seems a little out there to me. Well, you only have a couple that I've seen, maybe two or three. But Mikhail Friedman, um, who is a, a founder of the Alpha Group uh, Investment Fund, he was the first person. He happens to have been born in Ukraine. And he's the first person who kind of spoke out against this. But it was very gentle speaking out. It was kind of like, um, you know, let's have an end to the bloodshed. Can't we all get along? Let's stop mm -hmm. this. But it wasn't, Mr. Putin, you are d d making a terrible mistake here and you have to end this war. There was nothing like that. And then there was also Oleg Deripaska who came out, you know, he's a, uh, another super rich person, he came out and he said, we should have negotiations. But so far, that is not working. They are not going to Putin and saying, stop this madness. More of my conversation with Jill Doherty after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Jill, what about Putin's inner circle here? Do we get a sense that there could be any dissent in the ranks that would lead Putin to change his course in any meaningful way? Or is this going to go the way it's kind of always gone? If one person speaks up, they'll be dealt with and things will go on the way they had been. You know, at this point, I don't think that you can say that there is any type of pushback 
you know, overall, the people who are in the inner sanctum of relationships with Putin are what I would call hard men. You know, these are tough they call them in Russian siliviki. Sila is strength, and viki is the, the strong guys. They come from um, ministries like the defense ministry, intelligence, etc. And these are people who are really, some of them are even harder, we understand, than Putin himself. And mm. so they're, um, they're not likely to say this is a mistake. In fact, some of them might say, let's just keep going. Let's get hard. Double down. Yeah, double down and, and do that. Now, there's one interesting person, I think, and that is the defense minister, Shoigu, uh, Sergei Shoigu. He's quite popular. And he was considered maybe eventually a presidential candidate. But Shoigu, uh, at the beginning of the war, was there and then he disappeared. And he disappeared for, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And then he showed up on a Zoom call. He was up in the corner of one of those, you know, gallery views of people in the call. And there, there is a picture that I, I actually have in my mind where he's sitting at the table with uh, the chief of staff, Gerasimov, and he's looking really kind of distraught and very yeah. disturbed. So the implication, although we don't know this, is that maybe he has some difficulty. He is, after all, you know, a defense minister, and the war is not going well. The war is not going according to plan. Yeah, I wanted to ask, are any battlefield setbacks, are they making it to Putin? And is is that a reality that he is actually grappling with, or is that just another thing he can spin and move along with whatever his goals are. Well, he's trying to spin it, but, you know, you just mentioned the word goal. So if you go back to the beginning, Putin was saying that he was focusing on the eastern part, that breakaway Donbass region. But then he expanded. And this is where you get into the problem of Putin and his inner circle and how Putin has been isolated and uh, surrounded only by a very small group of people. Mm. So that was the original idea. Then obviously we saw the plan was much broader than that. It was take Kiev, maybe take the rest of the country. And then because they couldn't do that, because the military planning was so bad, then they decided they would go back and retake or, or concentrate on that Donbass region. That is where we are right now. So we have indications that Putin has tried to punish people who created that military plan and didn't carry it out. There have been indications that some people from the intelligence world have actually been under house arrest uh, and maybe even more. Um, because this is a humiliation for Putin. My view is it goes back to his desire for absolute control, feeling that he knows more than everybody else, and, and not trusting anyone. And then also the dynamic of tell the boss what he wants to hear. So when you put all of those factors together, he has been isolated for two years after, you know, with COVID-19 preparations and protections. And in that isolation was hatched this plan to invade, you know, Ukraine. Right. And there's been talk about Russia wanting to declare some sort of victory 
in May on, on an important date for Russia. Can you explain that and why that matters or would matter to the Kremlin? Yeah, so May 9th is Victory Day, and victory in World War II, victory, in fact, over fascist Germany. So this is very, very important. It has only grown in importance. It is huge. It is considered, if you look at modern-day Russia and Putin's Russia, that is the claim to fame for Russia, that it in their view, saved the world, literally, during World War II from Mm -hmm. fascist Germany. And the idea is that they would like and maybe want to have some type of, quote, victory by May 9th. But May 9th is almost here. So hence the intense effort to take Donbass by whatever means possible. Do you think that even if they haven't taken the Donbass, you know, and it's still kind of a slog for them, that they'll... Putin will still want to put on some kind of show on that day? Oh, no question. I mean, President Putin has to show that he won. There's there's no option in his mind. He cannot be defeated. And he cannot be defeated by Ukraine. I mean, they considered Ukraine a complete, you know, pushover state. President Putin doesn't even think it's a real country. So it would be ignominious for them to be even stopped or defeated by Ukraine. And that's where you get, this gets into propaganda, but that's where the narrative kind of shifts. Oh, it's not really Ukraine. It's really NATO. It's really the United States. And that, you know, goes well with Putin's idea that it's really a war with the West. Right. So you've, you know, studied and observed Russia, you know, for decades now. What about this conflict and and what Putin has done? What has surprised you the most? You know, I have kind of a mea culpa that I actually have been thinking about because right before the war, you know, everybody knew something was going to happen. And the U.S. was warning about it. The Russians were poo-pooing it. They were actually mocking it. I was in Moscow at the time. And the foreign ministry would say, ha-ha, it's 6 p.m., no invasion. But I think what I was surprised at was the fact that he actually invaded the rest of Ukraine. I really felt when they recognized the two breakaway statelets, which are people's republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, when they recognized them, I thought, okay, that makes sense. They recognize them. The people there ask for help from Russia. Russia goes in, rescues them. End of story. That to me seemed very rational and kind of cohesive. But when when he went into the rest of Ukraine with enormous force, enormous brutality, and just some of the most horrible tactics, anti-human tactics, then that that kind of surprised me. And maybe it shouldn't have. But I think, you know, there is a Western, a Western rational way of looking at this, which is not always the way it works in Russia. And I should have I should have understood that better. I certainly do now. Jill Doherty, fascinating perspective. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Tug of War. Thanks for listening. Remember, new episodes every Sunday and Wednesday. And for real-time updates of what's going on on the ground in Ukraine, subscribe to CNN Five Things wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. 
This episode was produced by me, David Rind, along with Audrey Horwitz, Nathan Miller, and Paolo Ortiz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Andrew Morse, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Elizabeth Roberts. I'll talk to you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.